With that being said, are you guys ready for the word this morning? Hallelujah. Well, Father, let's pray as we come to it. Father, we just thank you for your goodness and your great love. And I just thank you for who you are, Lord. And I thank you that in every situation that we face that you are here, it seems like this morning that potentially there's just all kinds of bad news. But Father, we know that you are here. You are in the midst of this place. Father, we lift up uh, all of those who are dealing with COVID this morning, and uh, we just take authority over that sickness right now in the name of Jesus. Their bodies were bought with a price, and they don't belong to the devil. They don't belong to this sickness. They belong to you, O oh God. So, Father, we just believe you this morning and trust what your word says, that by your stripes they are healed. We stand on that promise, and we thank you, Father, for a good report and a speedy recovery. And Father, we just thank you for this morning, this time in your word. We thank you that uh, we'll all continue to grow and we'll all continue to have a greater revelation of who you are. And Father, we just love you and we praise you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Hallelujah. You know, it's interesting. This whole day just started out as a stinky day. We walked into the church this morning and you would have swore somebody died in here. It smelled so bad in this place and then we have all the bad news of people being sick and, and all that stuff but the good news is is that no matter what's going on in our lives God is still with us amen he is going to make a way and he never leaves us nor forsakes us no matter how bad it seems to be and I'm just so thankful for that well this morning we're going to go ahead and continue on in the book of Hebrews chapter 4 verses 14 and we're going to read through verses 5 chapter 10 and a lot of what's going to be discussed today is about the Levitical priesthood and how Christ compares to that. And the Levitical priesthood, they had some certain requirements for those who were going to be high priests. So the first uh, requirement that, that was required was that they had to be like the people that they were representing. The, the high priest, the whole purpose uh, was for them to stand in and, and represent God to the people and represent people to God. So they had to be like people to represent people. So that was the first requirement of the Levitical priesthood. We're also going to see that the other major requirement of the Levitical priesthood to be a high priest was that you had to be called by God. Turns out you couldn't just raise your hand and say, pick me. There was some sort of, you had to be called by God. You had to be in the Levitical line. You had to be actually a descendant of Aaron and his, and, and his relatives. Um, so, and you had to be chosen by God. It wasn't just something that anybody could be, but it was actually a calling, just like with Aaron. How many know that Aaron, when the time came, he didn't just raise his hand and say, hey, I want, why don't we just do this? But it was actually God that says, you know what, we're going to start this, and Aaron's going to be the first high priest. So in, in light of those requirements, the author of Hebrews is going to argue that Jesus actually fulfills every single one of those requirements to be high priest. And then actually he does it in a greater way than any other high priest before him has done it. So let's go ahead and get started in the first part here. It says in Hebrews 4, verse 14, it says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. So Jesus here is referred to as a, the great high priest. You'll notice this is a title that's not actually uh, said about any other high priest in the Old Testament, any other of the Levitical high priests. Aaron, who was the first high priest, was not referred to as a great high priest. And no other priest since the time of Aaron has ever claimed that title 
Until now, the author gives it to Jesus. He is our great high priest. And the reason that he does this is because Jesus is actually different. Jesus is a great high priest because he is both fully man, but he is also fully God. He's a great high priest because he alone can bring people to God and bring God to people and ensure that the people get all that God has for them. Jesus is the ultimate revelation of who God is. One of the things you've heard me say is that, that uh, uh, Jesus is perfect theology. And the reason I say that is if you want to know what God is thinking, if you want to know what the will of God is, you just have to look at Jesus. And if Jesus did it, then that's the will of God. Because Jesus said, I only do what the Father tells me to do. We also know that through Jesus, all things were created. And he's also in whom the one that the purposes of God for this world were finished. Jesus is not the same as every other high priest that came before him. He is a great high priest. And Jesus is not only great in who he was, but Jesus is great in the position that he held as well. You'll notice that Jesus, it says here that uh, Jesus uh, passed through the heavens. All the high priests before Jesus ministered on earth. They ministered in an earthly temple. And if you know how that worked, they only entered the Holy of Holies once a year. But Jesus passed through the heavens. He is not sitting in something that's a type and shadow of the heavens. He's actually in the heavens. He's right next to God. He ascended and sits right at the right hand of God. Our priest ministers in heaven for us. And he doesn't just enter once a year, but he's there perpetually ministering for us, making propitiation for us, not in a temple made by earthen hands, but actually in the real Holy of Holies right next to God. And then we also see that Jesus, as a high priest, is faithful to God in, in the midst of suffering and temptation. How many know that Jesus went through some stuff? He was holy man. He felt the same things that we felt. He struggled with the same thing. And we know that, that the, the night before he was to be crucified, he felt fear. And he felt anguish to the point that while he was praying, he was sweating blood. It's because he was so much like us. He faced the same things that we did. And in even facing torture in his upcoming death, which he knew he was going to have, he still remained faithful. And then he even endured death to make atonement for our sin. See, Jesus was not just any high priest, but he's the great high priest. And because of all of these things, the author says that we should hold fast to our confession. That means you shouldn't turn around and walk away. You shouldn't give up. You shouldn't have doubt. Because of these things, we can, with a boldness, remain and hold fast to that confession and not walk away because our high priest faithfully represents us to God. He is faithful and he can be trusted as our high priest. And he alone is the one that can rescue us from judgment. Amen? And then he continues on and Verse 15, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. As further evidence as to why we can cling to Jesus and hold fast to our confession is that we have a high priest that can perfectly represent us. 
because he has been where we are. I don't know that in order for somebody to represent you, they have to be like you. Even in the government, that's the way it's supposed to work, right? The government in our country, that's the way it's supposed to work. Our, our leaders are supposed to represent us, right? We vote for somebody, we elect somebody that is supposed to represent our ideals. But have you ever noticed that it seems like they just don't really represent us? They don't really look like us? It's interesting to me that we have so many of these leaders calling for taking from the rich and giving to the poor. Yet all of them are individually rich and none of them practice what they preach. Have you ever noticed that? They all have all kinds of money and they think that we should all give our stuff away, but they don't seem to want to hold on to give away theirs because they don't actually represent us. They, they look different than us and the things that they want would apply differently to them than to us. You ever notice they make decisions every single day that impact the things that do affect us, like the price of gas, the price of food. Have you guys noticed that uh, shelves are bare recently and the cost of food is just going through the roof and the cost of gas is going through the roof? Much of that is due to the policies that are being enacted by the people that are supposed to represent us. But they can't represent us properly because they're so different from us. None of them are wondering about how expensive a jug of milk is because they have the money and they, have the people, they don't even have to go to the store to buy their own stuff in most cases, I imagine. They have people that do it for them. They have personal chefs and all of those things. They don't represent us. They can't sympathize with our plight because they don't experience our plight. How many of you guys have had to go to the store and make a conscious choice between healthy and cheap? They don't make that decision. They're, they don't actually represent us because they're not actually like us. And that's why there seems to be a disconnect, at least from my point of view, I think that's why there's such a big disconnect between the people that we put in office and what they're actually doing sometimes. But Jesus, he's different. Jesus, as our high, high priest, can actually sympathize with what we have gone through. He can sympathize with our weaknesses because he's dealt with it all. The Bible says that, that, that God set aside his deity and came down as a man. Jesus set aside his deity and lived as a man just like you and I. And the Bible says that he's actually experienced every temptation that we have ever experienced. Jesus dealt with temptation. Jesus dealt with the allure of sin in his life. He understands our struggle. And the only difference in that humanity part of him is that he never gave in. He never sinned. But he experienced the same temptation. He experienced the same allure of sin. That, that temporary passing pleasure of sin looked just as good to him as it does to us sometimes. Yet the only difference was is that he did not sin. And it always blew my mind that the Bible says that Jesus was tempted in every way as we are. This translation says in every respect he has been tempted as we are. Other translations say he's been tempted in every way that man is tempted. And this is crazy to me because not a single person of us in this room has been tempted in every way that man is tempted. He got it all. Every single way Jesus was tempted and he resisted that temptation. And we see that 
the, the big one that we all know about, right, is when Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness and was tempted. I don't believe that that was where every temptation happened to him. Jesus was tempted his entire life, just like you and I are tempted our, our entire life. That was recorded because that was a big event to show us some things, but the reality is, is that Jesus lived just like us, and he dealt with temptation his entire life just like us, except for he was tempted in every single way that man was tempted, and we're only tempted in the ways that probably impact us. And he was victorious. You know, that should be good news to you and I. Because you have his life inside of you. When Jesus gave his life on the cross and he rose again, he rose again to give us newness of life. We got his life. And if Jesus could resist temptation in every way that man was tempted, that means that we can resist temptation. That means that it's possible for us to live without sin. A lot of people give me a hard time because I like to say that I believe that as Christians, we can live without sin. Some people have this idea that they're relegated to that all Christians have to sin. I don't believe that. I believe it's possible if you are living in, 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 in perfect faith with your eyes perfectly on Jesus, I believe that, that, that if we had that perfect revelation that we could live with, with, without sinning at all. I believe it's possible. I also recognize that it's highly unlikely. I recognize in my own life that, you know, even Paul said, I'm not there yet. But I believe it is possible as we continue to press into God, to become closer to him every day, to look more and more like him every day. Jesus has given us his life. If we would live in it and experience it fully, I believe we could live without sin because he lived without sin. And he has given us his life. He has given us freedom from sin, freedom from, from death. And if he was able to resist, then we have the capability to resist. That should encourage you. That sin doesn't have a hold on you. It doesn't, we're not required. It's not just because we're humans, we're required to sin. We have been set free, amen? And then finally, this also brings up another point that I think is important that we all understand. Did you know that to be tempted is not sinning? To experience temptation is not sinning. Acting on temptation, that's sinning. You know, and that's the thing is, is that sometimes we think that just because we're tempted, we're something messing up. How could, how could that uh, uh, be alluring to us? How, how can that even be a temptation? But the Bible says that Jesus was tempted in every way that man was tempted. And if Jesus was tempted and never sinned, that means that we can be tempted and not sin. The issue is, is that we act on our sin. It's when those thoughts become actions that give birth to sin. That's the issues. I think that's why there's so much disconnect and a lot of uh, things that happen in this world. One of the biggest ones um, today that, that stands out to me is this idea of homosexuality. And people say, I can't help it. I'm just this way. And the issue is not having same-sex attracted thoughts. The truth is, is that every single one of us were born broken. Every single one of us were born with issues. We just have different ones. You know, most, most men are tempted to look at other women. But just because we're tempted, it doesn't mean we act on those things. The truth is, is there's base, base instincts in all of us that cause us to look at things in, in different ways. But just because that happens doesn't mean that we have to act on those things. And the same is true for homosexuality. I, you know, some people believe that, oh, God would never make people that way. And I agree, God wouldn't make people that way, but we're born broken. And some people are same-sex attracted. 
but they don't have to act on that temptation any more than I have to act on the temptation to sleep with every woman I see. We have the ability to resist these temptations. And that goes for any sin in your life, no matter what it is. We have the ability to resist. But we also need to recognize that just having the temptation is not sin. You will drive yourself into the ground if you begin to think that way. Here's the thing. It's like the old saying goes. And like the Bible, the Bible says, take every thought captive. That's how you deal with temptation. You take every thought captive. And, and the old saying goes that you can't stop a bird from landing on your head, but you can stop it from making a nest. Amen? And then in verse 16, he goes on and says, <clears throat> Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. In the Old Testament, anytime someone came into the presence of God or they saw the angel of the Lord, which was a representation of God, it always says they tore their clothes or they, that they fully expected to die. They fully expected to come in the presence of God. They were unclean, they were unworthy, and, and they all expected to die. You see it over and over and over again. And it's actually strange to us. We don't, we don't recognize that because truly we are so blessed to have Jesus take care of that so that we can approach his throne without worrying about dying or without worrying about being judged. But this idea of, of approaching the throne without permission or without being made right was something that they experienced all throughout the Old, Old Testament and they, they, they were scared when they came in the presence of God. And even in earthly kingdoms, you see the same thing. You guys all familiar with the story of, of, uh, of uh, Esther? So Esther was, was uh, one of many queens to, to the king at the time, and Mordecai was a Jew that was outside of, a, of, the, uh, of the, the, the kingship, the throne room, and all that stuff. And, he, and, and there was another guy that was trying to get all the Jews killed. So Mordecai approaches Esther, knowing that she was a Jew as well, and he says, you know what, you need to approach the king and help us deal with this situation. And she was afraid at first. She didn't want to go. You guys remember why she didn't want to go? Because if anybody approached the throne without explicit permission, and he didn't hold out his golden scepter, then they were immediately... It didn't matter if she was the queen. If she approached the throne without explicit permission, or if she did approach without permission, he didn't extend that golden scepter, she would be put to death. You don't just go approaching a king's throne. Or think about that in today's society. Even in our country, we don't have kings, but we have a president. What do you think would happen if you just tried to stroll into the White House and march into the Oval Office? I don't think you would get very far. So with that in mind, do you understand what kind of a privilege it is that we can approach the throne of God? We can approach the throne of God with a completely different attitude. We don't have to approach it in fear or in trepidation, wondering if we're going to die. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, and because Jesus can sympathize with our weakness, the Bible says that we can approach the throne of grace with confidence. And the reality is, is to be in the presence of God you must be clean and you must be right if you want to enter into his presence because light can have no fellowship with the dark. To come into God's presence without being clean would cause you to be destroyed. 
We can't exist in the same space. But because of what Jesus did, he has made us clean. He has made us right. We have a high priest that dealt with all of those things on the cross. So now that we can approach the throne, not with an expectation of anger or wrath or punishment, but with both grace and mercy. When we struggle, when we do fall, when we do feel, like I said, I believe it's possible to live with sin, but also recognize that we still do sin. And when we do so, we can still approach the throne expecting grace and mercy, not anger or wrath, because our high priest has taken care of it. And it says if we do approach it, because we're going to receive that mercy and grace in those times of need, amen? And then he continues on in verse 5. 1 through 4, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sin, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. And this, these four verses here, we're going to see the qualifications for a high priest under the old covenant being highlighted and then used as a basis for showing that Jesus could more fully fulfill the role of high priest in the new covenant than any of the Old Testament high priests. Jewish readers would already know that the high priest had to be a man who was chosen by God and he was a man that was chosen to represent men to God and God to man. He had two primary jobs, and like I said, is the, the, the first was to represent God to the people by ministering the word of God to the people. And then he represented uh, the people to God by making atonement for their sins. Even then, you couldn't approach the throne of God in sin. The sin had to be dealt with. So on the day of atonement, the high priest was to offer sacrifices to first atone for his own sins, and then he would offer sacrifices to atone for the sins of his people. And the very fact that he had to offer sacrifices for his own sins indicated that he was just like the people he was representing. He, he didn't have any uh, special advantage. He had to make uh, atonement for his own sin as well. He was, just, uh, he was in just as much need for, for forgiveness and cleanliness as any other person in the congregation. Now because of this, the Bible says that he should be able to deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. He was just like them, so he should be able to understand what they were going through. This idea of dealing gently can actually literally be translated from the Greek to moderate their anger. It's always amused me that some Christians, and you usually, usually see it with young and immature Christians, they get saved, and all of a sudden, they put on this holier-than-thou attitude. They forget that 15 minutes ago, they weren't looking for grace, and they see somebody acting outside of what God has called them to do, and they begin to act very judgmental, particularly to people that aren't even saved. I can tell you this right now, that if you, act, if you expect people who aren't saved to act like they're saved, you're just kidding yourself. That's why the Bible says we're not to judge those who are in unbelief because why would you expect them to act, to, to act saved if they're not saved? Why would you expect them to act like Christians if they're not Christians? That's just foolishness on our part. But so often in our 
freshly saved zeal, we forget all about that. We forget that it wasn't that long ago that we were struggling with those issues. And we forget that people need the same grace and forgiveness that we needed. And that was the whole purpose, is, is he should be able to, to, to deal gently or moderate his anger towards people that are messing up because he was susceptible to the very same things. He's dealt with them himself. The high priest could represent them because he dealt with the very same thing. And Jesus is just like that to us. He, he understands temptation. He understands weakness. He understands fear because he's felt it all himself. And then finally it says here the high priest doesn't take the honor for himself, but only when called by God. The office of high priest was actually given by God. It wasn't just picked by Aaron because he wanted to be that. And this was true for Aaron and every high priest afterward. They were always called by God to fulfill that role. And we're going to see just in a moment that this also applied to Jesus. In Hebrews 5, 5 through 6, it says, So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Like I said, the priest, the high priest in the Old Testament, they didn't grab this honor on their own, but it was given to them by God. The office of high priest was actually a calling, not something that you chose to do. And the author demonstrates that God actually chose Jesus to be elevated to the office of high priest as well. Jesus didn't say, you know what, that's going to be me, but he was actually called by God as well. So the first quote here, it says, you are my son, today I have begotten you, is from Psalm 2.7. It says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So just like the author did in the beginning of the letter, this shows that Jesus, uh, this actually passage in Psalms refers to Jesus' supremacy to all others and that he was specifically called by God. And just the next verse in Psalm 2.8, it says this, Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. And this was to represent that Jesus was actually going to be the ruler of all nations. Christ was going to be the ruler of all nations. And in the second quote here where he says, you are a priest of uh, the order of Melchizedek, uh, that's from Psalm 110.4. It says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And this is important because uh, although Jesus fulfilled all the other requirements to be a high priest, did you know he was still missing one requirement? In the Old Testament, who could be a high priest? They had to come from the Levitical line. They had to be in the, 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 the tribe of Levi. Jesus was not from the Levitical line. He wasn't born in, the, in, the, in that tribe. So only descendants of Aaron could be high priests in the Jewish system, and that was one thing that Jesus didn't fulfill. So the author makes a point to show right here that Jesus is actually part of a priesthood that's greater than the priesthood of Aaron. There's a couple things that you notice that's different. One, no priest in the Old Testament was ever, was, was ever also king. And we just showed that these two quotes show that one, Jesus was a king to all nations, and then finally he's part of a priesthood that's greater than Aaron's priesthood. 
Aaron's priesthood was only the, the life of man, right? Aaron was only the high priest till when? He died. <laughs> and every high priest afterward was limited to the lifespan of man. But this right here says you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So by using these texts as evidence, the author is explaining to these people that, that Christ is, is qualified to occupy both the office of high priest but also the office of king as well. Amen? Then in verse 7 through 8, it says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. And although he was, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. As we've already discussed, high priests had to be human in order to represent and sympathize those who they represented him. And, and the author is once again reinforcing this idea that Jesus actually had, was a human just like us. And in his humanity, he was able to experience the same things that we experience. He's talking about here, in his flesh, he offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears. This is actually probably describing what happened in the garden. Of, uh, how does that? Gethsemane? Yeah. The, the, when, he was, when he was there praying, saying, Lord, God, if there's any other way, if you can take this cup from me, take this cup from me. Jesus experienced fear. He was distraught. He was in anguish. And we know he was because it was so bad that it impacted his body to the point where he was sweating blood. He knew what he was sent there to do. Jesus knew what he had been sent to do. Jesus was committed to doing what he was sent to do, but still in his flesh, in his humanity, he still was afraid of what was coming. And he didn't want to deal with it. I don't think any of us could blame him. How many of us would be excited to go through what Jesus was about to go through? Jesus is able to sympathize with us because he was tempted and tested through his entire life right up to the very end and experienced the same thoughts, emotions, fears, pain, and all those things as we do. But he chose to submit himself to God, even to the point of death. And what's interesting if you look at the prayers that Jesus was asking to be free from, from death, God actually did answer those prayers. He still suffered torture and death. He still went to the cross and gave his life. But three days later, he rose again. He rose from the grave and he had defeated death. God had delivered him from death just like he had asked. And in doing so, every single one of us have been freed from the power of sin and death as well. And then finally, in verses 9 through 10, where we're going to end today, it says, And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Once again, the author is reiterating this idea that Jesus has been designated by God to be a high priest. Further reiterating those qualifications, I imagine... When, when this author is writing this stuff, he's getting some pushback from the Jews, and they're trying, trying to, he's actually laying out this case as to why Jesus was qualified to be king and high priest. So he's going over the evidence over and over again, and 
Many times when I read the Bible and I recognize that stuff's being repeated over and over again, it probably means we should pay attention and understand how this stuff works. So we see that, that he is a high priest of the order of Melchizedek. Even though he's not a Levitical priest, he's part of the priesthood that's forever. And we also see that Jesus was made perfect through his suffering. Isn't that a weird phrase? He says he was being made perfect. Does anybody ever read that and say that doesn't make sense? Because I don't know about you guys, I assume Jesus was already perfect <laughs> before he went through this. But the Bible says he's being made perfect. But the reason it says that is not because it's referring to Jesus' sinless nature. He was already the perfect lamb. He was already sinless. It's not referring to perfect in that sense. But what has the author been talking about this whole time? His qualifications, his priesthood, right? So that's what this perfectness is talking about. He isn't describing the character or status of God, but it's, he's referring to his qualifications as high priest. He has been made perfect to be our high priest, to be our captain, to represent us and what he has gone through and in his humanity. Being made perfect has nothing to do with his character, but everything to do with the role that he was about to fulfill. And the truth is, is that he perfectly fulfilled that role that he was intended to fulfill as our captain and high priest. And because he was the perfect high priest, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. This is not only a promise, but it's also a warning. The good news is it's a promise. All who obey him, all who put their trust in him, all who call him Lord and Savior, they're saved. We have eternal salvation. But it's also a warning as well because we have to ensure that we don't turn away from Christ looking to some other inferior system for our salvation. So many people do. Jesus is the only way to heaven. He's the only way to salvation. He's the only way to the Father. And any other system that man looks to is inferior. And that goes for people that aren't Christians, any other religion or, or other thing that's going on. But that also goes for in, the own, in our own churches where we get confused and we begin to put the emphasis on, on the things that we do instead of the things that he did. Amen? We have to keep our eyes on him, obey his word. And salvation comes to those who put their trust in Jesus, making him their Lord and Savior. Amen? Amen. Hallelujah.